Welcome to Your Live Well, the podcast series bringing you expert-led advice, thoughts and opinions from across the breadth of well-being and from some of the amazing contributors featured at Live Well London 2020. In this episode, join Chartered Psychologist Kimberly Wilson for a talk about how to care for your grey matter and combat the onset of dementia, mental health issues and much more. Whatever your age, having a healthy brain is the key to a happy and healthy life, and Kimberly is a passionate advocate for the importance of mental health, drawing on the latest research to give practical, holistic advice on how you can protect your brain health by making simple lifestyle choices. With a focus on all areas of well-being, from sleep and nutrition to exercise and meditation, Kimberly offers an empowering guide to help you look after both your brain health and your mental well-being. So sit back relax and enjoy this episode. The leading cause of death in the UK is Alzheimer's disease. It's overtaken heart disease, right? So we need to be thinking about, in terms of young people, we've got accelerating rates of concern in mental health. And now the leading cause of death in the UK is of the mind, yeah? It's an issue. So uh, more people die from Alzheimer's disease than breast cancer and prostate cancer combined. And that's really important because if you think about public health campaigns, cancer, people are running for cancer, giving up chocolate for cancer, we are doing all sorts of things for diabetes. Yet, if I stopped somebody in the street, you know, if I stopped two people and said, hey, do you know how to look after your body? People would probably be able to say, yeah, you know, I'll do some exercise, I'll eat some vegetables, I'll, you know, I basically got a general idea. But if I asked anybody, how do you look after your brain? Most people would be pretty stumped as to what things might be associated with better brain health, yeah? Um, the social care costs associated with dementia are larger than those attributable, attributable to cancer, heart disease, and stroke combined, yeah? Like, it's a massive issue, and not enough people are thinking about it. And ironically, even though this is well-established in the literature, this information isn't trickling down to the public. And the, the rise in things like Alzheimer's disease, often when we say things like that, when we have conversations like this, people will say, well, sure, that's, you know, we've got an aging population, people are getting older, it's an age-related disease, therefore we should expect that the rates are going up. Actually, no because the rates of diseases like, like chronic diseases like cancer and heart disease are going down at the same time that rates of Alzheimer's are going up. And also people are getting Alzheimer's and dementia now much younger. So it doesn't seem to be strictly related just to age. There's something about the way that we're living which is giving us a much higher risk of these mental health concerns. Yeah? All right. So there's a knowledge gap between what's there in the scientific literature and the research literature and what people know. And I don't know if you can read it there, but it says that dementia is not an inevitable part of aging. Most people think, oh, I just got to cross my fingers and hope that I've got good genes. Actually, the genetic risk, there is a genetic risk for Alzheimer's, but that accounts for less than 5% of the total cases. What the rest of it is what we call sporadic, and it emerges as a relationship between lifestyle, environment, and internal risk factors, yeah? But you don't have to take my word for it. This is from the NHS website. 
And it literally says, dementia is not an inevitable part of aging. So this is known. Like, the National Health Service knows this, yet I'm guessing most of you didn't, yeah? So in terms of that knowledge gap, around 83, 85% of people say, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that I can do something to reduce my risk of diabetes. Yet only one in four people knows or believes that you can do something to reduce your risk of something as devastating as Alzheimer's disease. When in fact, actually, a big international study was published three years ago, which said that if we took the best advice, and it's, you know, it's very much best case scenario, we're talking, uh, oh, we've got a, hello. <laughs> um, very much best case scenario. It's very much people kind of living almost pristine lives. But if we took that advice, we could reduce global Alzheimer's disease risk by 30%. So it's one in three cases of global Alzheimer's could be prevented. And at current rates, so at the moment, there are somewhere between 47 million and 50 million cases of Alzheimer's disease around the world. We're expected to, that's expected to triple by 2050 to 152 million. So right now, that would be about 15 million people fewer with Alzheimer's. And that's a big deal. I think that's the kind of thing that people ought to know. They have some hand in being able to shift, change, improve, reduce your risk. And I say reduce risk because I don't want to, you know, there's no magic bullets. I'm not going to say this is something that will, is guaranteed. But the evidence is very, very firm. We're talking about international global studies from some of the best researchers in the world. And they say one in three. Yeah. 42% of UK adults, when you stop them and ask them, what disease are you most scared of? What are you most frightened of getting? Most people, 42% of people say dementia. You know, I don't want to forget who I am when I'm older. I don't want to, you know, lose my memories, lose those relationships, end up very, very dependent. 72% of people in care homes are there for dementia. But only 1% of people can name the lifestyle risk factors associated with increased dementia risk, right? So there's this huge gap between what people are frightened of, what the science says you can do, and what the general public knows that they can do to improve their chances. And it's very, very striking because in all other aspects of health, we take a prevention process, right? So you don't wait until your teeth start falling out before you start brushing your teeth, yeah? Yet in mental health, that's the only area of health where we wait for something to go wrong first, right? We wait for you to get depression. We wait for you to have a panic attack. We wait for some crisis to emerge before we then go, oh, oh, sorry, let's see what we can do and try and fix it. So in every other area of health, we think about prevention. We don't think about prevention in mental health. It doesn't make any sense because, you know, you can have beautiful glossy hair and a six pack. But if you don't feel good, if you're not getting that sense of satisfaction, meaning, enjoyment, engagement with your life, what is it good for, right? So 
this is this is much more impressive when you can see it big but this is from again the this is the public health england website and i was looking for public health campaigns um at the moment and so we've got some coronavirus campaigns here making sure people wash their hands we've got two for smoking cessation we've got uh, re antibiotic resistance warnings lots and lots of very important useful information and then just here we have every mind matters which is um, an app where you can kind of track uh, your mood and it will give you information about how to improve your sleep. I mean, that's good, but it's not really tackling, A, the biggest cause of death in the UK. It's not advising people on what they can do to improve their brain health, not just right now, but kind of what I say, future-proofing, protecting your brain health for the long term. Um, so frankly, I think it's inadequate. Disorders of the brain and mental health are some of the biggest killers and causes of global disease burden, yet there's no public health campaign for the brain. It doesn't make sense. I don't like it. I'm very angry about it. Um, and I, I'm the kind of person where I'd rather not just complain and do nothing. If you can be part of the solution, then I think you should be. And that's kind of why I'm here today, that what I want you to understand is that there are things that you can do. Your brain is an organ, and like all the other organs in your body, it needs the right nutrition, it needs movement, it needs looking after, and if you look after it, you're gonna give it a much better chance of staying healthy as long as possible, right? So that's what this talk is about, that's what my book is about, and what I'm gonna do is to take you through a few of the key principles, there are a lot of principles, a few of the key principles so that you can get a sense of how it works and how you might be able to integrate it into your life. Yeah, we all good? All right. So, this, and I'm happy for people to come and look at this afterwards because I think it's important. This is a healthy brain, big, plump, small, um, very small gaps between the, the cortices. And this is an Alzheimer's disease brain. And you'll notice that it's much smaller. There are much bigger gaps in the cortices. And that's essentially because in Alzheimer's disease, the brain cells begin to shrink back, so they begin to die, and you get what are called lesions, which are gaps in, in the brain tissue. And But what's really, really interesting is that, as, I, as we've established, and I hope as you get now, this isn't inevitable. And what we have is a principle called cognitive reserve. And I call that the pension plan for your brain. And in the same way as a pension plan, the sooner, the earlier you start one, the better. And so cognitive reserve came out of some research back in the 1980s. Uh, a group of researchers were uh, following um, some elderly residents of a nursing home in New York. And what's very well established in Alzheimer's disease research is that the, the rate of disability, so the, the amount of memory that's lost, the amount of impairment, the amount of confusion, is very closely correlated to the actual amount of damage in the brain. So what they do is um, you know, assess people when they're alive, see what the amount of disability that they have, and then that usually matches very well the amount of damage you see in the brain after, after they've died. What they found in this particular paper was that there were a, a subset of residents who seemed to be protected. And what we meant by that is that 
If you spoke to them day to day, they seemed fine. They were sharp, they were on it, they could answer your questions, they could remember things from way back and from yesterday. Yet, when they assessed their brains after their deaths, they found actually quite serious damage in their brains. So there was this kind of mismatch between what was expected to be seen. But the striking thing was that when they weighed these brains, they were heavier than the people who, with damage who also showed deficits, right? And so the question was, what is it about this group of people which means they have heavier brains? And one thing was, possibly, maybe, they were just born with bigger brains. Unlikely, you know, there aren't the babies born with giant heads. You know? <laughs> um, but actually, they decided that what it was was that there was something about the way that these people were living their lives which gave them extra capacity throughout their lives. And like a pension plan, what that means is if you've got a bigger pot to start with, when you have to start taking withdrawals, you're going to have more left over, yeah? And so that's the principle of cognitive reserve, that you keep making these little deposits day by day, a little bit at a time, so that if your brain declines, and we expect around, around the age of 60, that your brain will begin to shrink by about 1% per year, Yes, it's a shocking stat, like, um, and that's, what, that's considered normal. But if you start with bigger capacity to start with, do you see how that protects you? Yeah. So that's cognitive reserve. And essentially, that, those are the principles of the book. What I've said is what we're going to do is to help you know what you can do to help make those deposits and reduce the amounts that's being taken out on a day-to-day -day basis. And I've broken that down into two main principles. One is inflammation, and the other is neurogenesis. So inflammation is, I'm sure you've heard a little bit about it by now, that's your body's response to injury or illness. And it's fine, it's normal, we need it. It's what we'll need if coronavirus arrives. We want that inflammatory response to help protect us. And I describe it usually as, it's almost like you've just got like, like, like this chap over here, just a security guard who's just kind of strolling around, <laughs> looking out, making sure there aren't any troublemakers. If he recognizes any troublemakers, he'll grab them, you know, send them packing, and then he can go back to just a very normal level of observation. That's what we call a normal self-limiting inflammatory response. What becomes a problem is if there's this chronic activation and there are lots of things about our daily lives that lead to this chronic activation and to use the same analogy it's as if this chap has been working for four months non-stop no breaks no holidays is absolutely exhausted and when you're that tired you end up making mistakes maybe there's you, you think there's someone there, but there's actually not, or maybe there's a case of mistaken identity, in which case we have things like autoimmunity, so damage to the body's own healthy tissues, or allergies, which is an inflammatory response to something that is otherwise benign, right? So there are lots of things in our daily lives that cause this neuroinflammation, uh, this inflammation. And what inflammation can do is trigger neuroinflammation, right? So it can make the boundary between the bloodstream and the brain a bit more permeable than it should be, which means things in the blood cross into the brain that shouldn't be there. The brain is very protective of what's in there. It has its own immune system. That gets triggered. That sends the alarm signals raising. And then with neuroinflammation, we know it's associated to depression, to bipolar disorder, to schizophrenia, and, and to Alzheimer's disease, right? So basically, we want to keep 
inflammation down. But the good news is that we have another process called neurogenesis. So neuro meaning brain cell, genesis, the creation of, for all you religious people in the room. Um, and neurogenesis is essentially the principle that we retain the capacity to build new brain cells in adulthood. And that's a fairly recent finding. It used to be believed that you were basically born with all the brain cells you would ever have, and you better look after them because afterwards, it was just a downward slope from there. We know that's not true now. We know that there are two or three areas of the brain that retain this capacity to build new connections and new cells. And one of those is the hippocampus. And I'm going to mention that because it's the one that is kind of most important to this. The hippocampus is an area of the brain that's associated with memory. And it's therefore, it makes sense that it's the area of the brain that is first and most severely damaged in Alzheimer's disease. But the hippocampus is one of the places where, that retains this capacity for new brain cell growth. We call it hippo, adult hippocampal neurogenesis. Yeah? So that's the good news. And I'm going to take you through just a couple of principles as to how you can um, do this for yourself. The first one to ease you in is nutrition. And this quote says, nutrition, and this is from the Lancet Psychiatry 2015, so it's been out a little while, but nutrition is as important to psychiatry as it is to cardiology. And when this paper was published, essentially that was supposed to be a klaxon call for psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health practitioners to be taking their patients and clients' nutritional status into account when we're doing assessments, right? So if someone comes into you and says, I'm very, very depressed, it's not simply enough that we're saying, okay, so you know, what's gone wrong? We also need to be thinking about how you're sleeping, what your relationships are like, and also what's your diet like? What's your nutrition like? What are you feeding your brain? Is your brain getting what it needs to do the basics, yeah? Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to have gone anywhere yet. We're crossing our fingers. I'm going to read you through this, uh, just because it's very small, but just to let you know. So in big observational trials, what we call epidemiology, we have found a relationship between better diet and reduced risk of depression. So in a big study of 10,000 people, and they split the diet quality into fives. So your first quintile, your second quintile. Um, the people with the worst diet had three times the risk of depression as the people with the better diets. What was quite nice about that study is that there seemed to be a threshold effect, which is once you were pretty much in the middle, once you had a pretty decent diet, then there was no, you know, you didn't have to keep kind of shoveling salad down your face. It was just once you'd hit a threshold effect, that seemed to be enough. Um, if you've heard of the SMILES trial, that was the first RCT, so a trial that can show a causative effect showing that nutritional improvement could reduce depression. So what they did was to take 67 people who had a clinically defined bad diet and who also had depression. And these people were already on treatment. So they'd already had their diagnosis. They were already, already in receipt of um, antidepressants and or therapy, right? So these were depressed patients. And they split them into two and gave half of them social befriending. And we know that improving someone's sociability reduces depression. And they gave the other half 12 weeks of nutritional intervention, some, some food packs and um, some meetings with a dietitian to let them, to help them to know how to make a broadly Mediterranean style diet. So oily fish, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts, um, 
a little bit of chocolate, a little bit of red wine, that sort of thing. After 12 weeks, so just three months, and remember that these were people who were already depressed and in treatment, a third of the participants, and it was a small trial, but it has been replicated, but a third of the participants went into remission, which means they were no longer depressed. So that's really important. So we don't want to make huge promises, but we need to understand that for some people, the, their diet is a trigger for this inflammatory response, and that that's going to be contributing to their mental health concerns. And that's really important because depression is lining up to be our leading cause of disease burden around the world, yeah? We also know, for example, so going back to Alzheimer's disease, and again, people tend to think that there's nothing you can do about it. That's not true. There's a big study called the uh, Finnish Geriatric Intervention Study. And what they've done is to take people who already have what's called mild cognitive impairment. So that's the kind of like normal forgetfulness that we tend to associate with getting older. Like, oh, you've just forgotten where you put your keys. Don't worry about it. You know, grandma's just a little bit forgetful. So it's not fully bone Alzheimer's or dementia, but it's that kind of on the way there, it's often a precursor. So they took people with this MCI and they gave them a multimodal intervention, improved their nutrition, got them doing a little bit of regular exercise and also helped them with their social relationships. And after two years, what we found was a leveling out. So they didn't, there was no further decline. And for some people, a reversal in their cognitive performance. So there's, there's things that we can do. And it's so important that people know this because what tends to happen is that, well, one of the main things is that there are no, there's no cure for Alzheimer's disease. There's no, there's no drug that can help fix it. Uh, Pfizer, Eli Lilly, um, Johnson & Johnson have all abandoned their Alzheimer's disease trials because none of the drugs have been working. So we need to start thinking much more about prevention, and we need to be thinking much more about early intervention and helping people who start to show those early signs that there's something they can do to help protect their brain health. All right, let me check my time here. All right. This is one of my favorite slides in the world ever, and you can come and see this afterwards if you want to. So these are actually mouse brain cells. So everything I'm telling you about otherwise is human trials. These ones, it's quite difficult to get humans to let you take brain cells out of their heads, so uh, we tend to have to rely on mice for that one. But these are the brain cells, the hippocampal brain cells of uh, mouse pups, so the babies, of mothers who were either fed enough omega-3 fatty acids or not enough omega-3 fatty acids. So those oily fish fatty acids, DHA. And what you find in the brains of the babies, of the mothers who didn't get enough, is that they are 50% fewer connections than the brains of the babies whose mothers did get enough. And that's really important, right? Because essentially what we're talking about is whether these babies are born with a basic structure for good brain health or they're not, yeah? And that, when we think about our increasing rates of mental illness in young people, that's gotta be one of our considerations, right? What was the state in utero of the mother's nutrition before they even had a chance to get out into the world and be faced with all of these environmental factors as well. Yeah, really, really important. There was a researcher called Michael Crawford who back in the 70s predicted, he said, look, no one is eating enough oily fish and you guys need to be ready for a crisis in mental health. And it kind of looks like we're, we're there. Physical activity is one of the most robust ways that we have of upregulating the hormones that help build new brain cells, yeah? So it's, 
lots of different types of exercise do it and it's important that you know that and I've, I'm just going to go through two or three aerobic resistance and walking and you'll be very surprised at the effects that you can just achieve through walking so what we know with aerobic exercise is that it's linked to having just a bigger hippocampus so people who are regularly exercising whatever they're doing whether it's running or tennis or swimming or you know any aerobic exercise they have bigger brains than people who don't and yeah <laughs> right and that's it makes sense because essentially not only are you getting this upregulation in the chemicals but when you're exercising you get a, what's called more perfusion which is more blood flow to the brain and with more blood flow comes more nutrients more oxygen so that your brain has that substrate in order to you know make new brain cells so that's one of the very important things. It improves attention. And we know now, and I'm very careful about the words I use in, in talks like this, um, because sometimes people say prevention when they say what they really mean is like slightly reduced risk. But actually, we know from prospective studies where you take a group of people and you follow them from baseline over a number of years, we know that exercise is actively pre prevent protective against depression. So again, that's something else to be thinking about, particularly for our young people. I think if you can get them into regular sports or regular activities, you'll be doing them a favor, not just in terms of their brain health, but their mental health as well. Resistance training, they took a group of older women, so women whose brains might already have been slightly shrinking a little bit, and separated them into two groups. Half did one uh, session of lightweight training a week, and the other half did three. And after a year, the women who did three lightweight training sessions a week had fewer lesions, so fewer gaps in their brain, fewer loss of, less loss of nerve cell, less damage than the women who were only doing it once a week. So, and, and that's because those chemicals that build muscle are the same ones that build brain cells, yeah? So when you're, whenever you're moving, your brain is getting a boost, and that's really important to remember. Um, and all of this, so even the nutrition stuff, all of this tends to be irrespective of BMI. So it's not about the loss of weight. The weight didn't change. In the SMILES trial, the one that showed depression recovery, weight didn't change. It was about just the activity. It was just about engaging in those behaviors. And I think that's really important because I think sometimes people get a little bit put off if they feel like the goal is weight loss. Actually, it's just engaging in the behaviors that will give you those benefits. And walking, I'm going to talk you through the, the walking one. So we know, for example, that in one study, just walking one mile a day, which is 10, 15, 20 minutes, depending on your speed, um, reduce risk of cognitive impairment by 50%, right? And so what I'm saying is that you don't have to be like marching all over the place. You don't have to sign up for marathons. Just a little bit of extra movement can make the difference in terms of your brain health and your brain health risks. And I'm just going to read this one out because I think it's, it kind of makes a point about how little is effective. So exercise training increased hippocampal volume by 2%, effectively reversing age-related loss by one to two years. Yeah. And in this trial, participants started by walking for 10 minutes and increased walking duration weekly by just five minute increments until they were walking 40 minutes at week seven. Right, so again, this is, these aren't intense trials. We're talking increasing your weekly walk by five minutes and getting a reversal in brain aging, right? Super important. 
All right. And the, I'm running, give it, I'll, I'll go through this very quickly. I know I'm running out of time. Um, so the other thing, another very interesting one, you guys have heard about the gut-brain axis, so that relationship between the gut and the brain. Well, this nerve here, the vagus nerve, is the main component, the main structural component of that gut-brain axis. So it starts around here at the base of your, your spine, base of your brain, and it kind of goes down and it loops in under the throat. It goes, it connects into the lungs, into the heart, I'll explain why, um, into the stomach, the liver, the kidneys, and then rounds out at the gut. So you can see that here, all of these nerve endings in the gut. And the interesting thing about it is this, first of all, it's a bi-directional relationship. So signals are going in both directions. But if you imagine it as a motorway, then about eight of the lanes, seven or eight of the lanes are actually going upwards, feeding information back to the brain from the body. So most people think, oh, it's just a, the brain sending out information all the time. Actually, the brain is getting all of this information back from the body. And that's why that separation between the brain and the body just doesn't make sense. Actually, the brain is constantly getting this information, working out what's happening in the body, working out what the body needs, working out what it needs to do in order to maintain health and homeostasis. What we also know about the vagus nerve is that it's the main component of what's called your parasympathetic nervous system. So if you've heard about the fight or flight response, that the thing that triggers your anxiety, the thing that gets your heart racing, reduces, releases cortisol and adrenaline, that's the sympathetic nervous system. And so the parasympathetic nervous system is the opposite of that. It's, we also call it the rest and digest system or the feed and breed system, uh, in as far as it's associated with rest, relaxation, recovery, feeding, sexual um, activity. And that makes sense, right? Because when you're stressed, that's when your libido drops. When you're stressed, you're not thinking, mm, maybe I'll stop for a snack, or maybe I'm feeling amorous. You're, you're when you're stressed, your brain is in survival mode, your body's in survival mode, and you need to switch. And it is a switch. They can't be working at the same time. It's like a seesaw if you need to switch back into that parasympathetic mode to get that relaxation and restoration benefit. So your vagus nerve does both. And that makes sense in terms of things like IBS as well, right? Which is often stress related. When you're stressed, you get this kind of down activation of the vagus nerve, this gut brain connection, and then you can't digest anything and everything's a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. It's one of the reasons that you shouldn't be eating on the move or when you're stressed or when you're angry and should always be taking a few quiet breaths before you start your meal. Slightly different discussion. Um, what we know also about the vagus nerve, if you can switch it on, if you can turn it on, is that it's powerfully, potently anti-inflammatory. So much so that vagus nerve stimulation, which is, it's like a little tiny kind of um, pacemaker. So you can get a little pack that goes under the skin near the collarbone, um, not off the shelf, <laughs> it's quite, quite serious. Um, and it has a little coil that goes around the vagus nerve and it gives it a little bit of electrical stimulation and that effectively eliminates pain in rheumatoid arthritis. So it's that powerful in terms of, re of reducing that inflammation and it's currently in trials for reducing uh, depression as well. But you don't have to go and have surgery in order to activate your vagus nerve. You should be relieved to hear because one of the most potent ways to influence it is through the breath, yeah? We remember it goes in both to the throat, under the throat, 
and into the lungs. It's the responsible for that tidal volume. And if any of you have done yoga, then the kind of breath we're talking about, because often, you know, if you're stressed, people go, oh, just take a few deep breaths, you know, count to 10, take a few deep breaths. That's, I mean, it's well-intentioned, but it's not massively helpful because they're not telling you about the, what kind of breath you need to be taking. And so if you've done yoga, what we're talking about is the ujjayi breath. So that long exhalation, an exhalation which is about twice as long as the inhalation, where there's a very slight constriction in the back of the throat. I won't give you a demonstration now, you can look it up online, but that's the kind of breath that we're talking about. And that's really powerful because actually, essentially what it's saying is, if you can, if you're stressed, if you're worried, if you're, if you're preparing for a talk, then you have an opportunity to do something that has been shown, and in the book I go into the actual the trials that have shown it to be effective in treatment-resistant depression, to be able to help bring you down and kind of recenter you in a, in a way that is actually effective and isn't just kind of woo-woo wellness stuff. All right, I've got two minutes left, which is cool. So actually, this is just to let you know that those are some of the principles. Um, I've, gone th I've tried to make the book as comprehensive as is humanly possible. So I've done sleep, nutrition, fasting. There's lots of interesting research around fasting, but there are lots of caveats. Like basically with fasting, you need to have a good basic diet anyway. You don't want to just fast on a bad diet. That will just make things worse. Um, but there's some interesting research around how some types of fasting can be neuroprotective. Um, I talk about, as I say, activity, heat exposure, but also emotions, right? So if I'm doing a therapy or clinical assessment, what people don't realize is that emotional health is mental health, right? If, if, we're, if we're doing a therapy assessment, a clinical assessment, what I'm looking for is actually, what is your mood like day to day? You know, are you down all the time? Are you chronically sad? But also, is your emotional response appropriate? Are you laughing in the right places? Are you sad in the right places? Are you telling me this terrible, traumatic story with absolutely no emotion? So actually, emotional health is mental health, but people seem to be quite dismissive of emotions. Talk about emotions just being a bit, you know, incidental and unhelpful or just in the way. But what I want to kind of convey is that if you can understand your emotions, manage your emotions, then actually what you do is to help reduce the stress of excess emotional activity, and that will help to look after your brain health long term. There's also problem solving, managing um, money, because one of the other things is the relationship between money and mental health, whether that's... Um, shopping because you feel down and then ending up with debt, whether it's problem gambling, we need to be thinking about the way that we use money, but also the way that often mental health concerns can make it difficult to manage your money and all of those sorts of things. So I talk about that too. And it's me. And I just wanted to leave you with this quote, which says, um, and it's from the European Neuropsychopharmacology uh, Journal in 2017. One thing is for sure, depression and mental health problems in general can no longer be seen only as disorders of the mind, or indeed only as disorders of the brain. The strong impact of the immune system on emotions and behavior demonstrates that mental health is the health of the whole body. That's me. This is my attempt at a public health intervention yep, uh, for the brain. And I am very happy to take some questions. <laughs>
Thank you so much, Kimberly. And also just to point out, Kimberly's got a book signing session at 12, which is just over there in the bookshop area. So, and you can chat to her for a bit. Yeah, yeah. But we've got about 10 minutes for any questions. If anyone wants to put the hand up and ask Kimberly anything. Yes, here we go. Yeah. Oh, was that the question? <laughs> <laughs> Um, in your book, do you discuss the impact of sort of sex hormones, both male and female, on mental health or on brain health or anything like that? No, I don't. I don't split it out. So it, it is true, for example, that out, that women have twice the risk of um, Alzheimer's disease as men, and we think that's associated to estrogen is neuroprotective. Yeah. And when women go through the menopause, obviously they lose that neuroprotection when estrogen kind of falls off a cliff. But this, because I want the, the, the book to be as comprehensive as possible, I've kind of essentially gone across the board at things that work for everyone. Yeah, of course, of course. No, for sure, I was just checking. Maybe you could do a blog post on it or an uh, Instagram about it so I could read it, please. <laughs> sure thing. Hi. Um, I uh, work on mental health in the workplace, mindfulness, reducing stress and things like that. Um, but one of my biggest challenges is engaging men in conversations around mental health. I mean, even if we look here, it's kind of probably 90% women. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how to engage men in those conversations um, and start changing that narrative around male mental well-being? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think one of the ways that I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think the one of the emphasis that I've tried to make is that it's because mental health tends to be quite feminized. It's, you know, women are the ones who talk. Women are all the therapists. I think there were like three men on my my training course, you know, out of, you know, 30, 35 of us. Um, what I've tried to do is to slightly sidestep it and talk about the physical aspect. So I'm talking about the brain. I'm not talking about your mental health. I'm talking about your brain health, optimizing uh, act, you know, your concentration and your brain function and your processing, um, slightly in a way to kind of draw people in. But I think it's really, I think it's really what we need is more male role models, more male speakers, more male therapists, so that actually, because it's so much about feeling as if you can identify with the person who's doing the talking. Um, so if you've got men on your team, or you can find some, <laughs> that might be a, a good idea, I think. Great. Thank you. Any more? Any more? Brain, depression, mental health, nutrition? No. Well, All thank right. you so, so thank much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Enjoy, really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your Live Well. You can join us for more episodes and find out about future Live Well events at livewelllondon.com. If you'd like to find out more from Kimberly on this topic, her latest book, How to Build a Healthy Brain, is out now, available on Amazon or via her website. You can find the links to these in the episode description. For now, take care, live well, and we'll see you soon.